This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seat, two-term incumbent, independent. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvalis joining you from Wurundjeri country. And I'm Frank Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation. And soon we're going to be joined by Lorena Allam. She's a Gamilaroi and Yawalara woman and the Indigenous Affairs Editor at Guardian Australia. PK, you and Lorena were both at Gama last weekend, you lucky things. You're a regular at Gama, in fact, aren't you? I think this is your fourth time. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, he used his speech there to announce the shape for the referendum question on the voice to Parliament. So it was a, a really big moment. What was the mood like? at Gama this year compared to past years? Electric, magical, excited, hopeful. It was actually quite a vibe. Now, there's a reason for that. Even before the Prime Minister delivered his speech, all of those emotions, feelings, anticipation was there because since the election of Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, there has been a sense that he was a Prime Minister who had promised already that he would deliver on the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which was delivered in 2017, now five years ago. That's half a decade of waiting and waiting while we know the gap continues in some areas to grow where the continuing anguish about the the kind of degradation of culture, custom, tradition and language continues in this country and there is a sense of despair among many Aboriginal people. So there was a sense that he was a Prime Minister that was going to do something but that wasn't quite enough until he delivered the speech because then it was about, well, what will it be? There was great mm. anticipation about it and then he did go uh, quite far in so much as providing a simple question. What's important to say here is that this is the question that was already articulated. I mean, what he did really was borrow from the actual people who've been campaigning for Uluru. Like, this is the kind of question they were framing. They wanted to keep it simple too. But what I want to say is that it was a significant moment. There was a great sense of emotion, actually real emotion in the room, like people were crying. Uh, people were very moved by it. And, and the Prime Minister himself appears to me very emotional when he talks about it. I feel like he has a lot invested in this, in fact, as an individual and understands the issue deeply. And so that was a game changer. Often these garments have been very disappointing. I, I was there when Malcolm Turnbull broke their hearts, right? There was a great sense that he was a sort of progressive Liberal Party leader that you know, he was behind the Republic um, referendum, that he might be someone who got it. And then he famously used the third chamber line, not there at Gama, but he had used it, right? So this was a big deal. We're going to talk about it more with Lorena uh, in detail, so I won't go on for much longer. But I do think it's worth saying that this was kind of a game-changing moment mm. ever since we're having all this clamour for detail. I actually do think detail and the question for detail does matter. All questions must be answered and settled in terms of making people understand an issue fully. But fundamentally, this is a question about going towards righting the wrongs of the past. You can never untangle the the mess that was colonisation in this country. But what you can do is tr try and listen and take seriously the concerns of First Nations people. And I think there is a sincere attempt at that now. 
Yeah, and I think there is a wellspring of support in the community for a hopeful question, for the symbolic gesture of recognising the first Australians in the constitution. So you're right, you then got to make sure that any of the scare campaigns, that people do understand this so that they're not frightened by it, because it's easy to frighten people. It's easy to, to knock off referendums or scare campaigns. We've seen that happen before. I think the general population would like to do this. So we have to sort of calm the farm, if you like, calm everyone down around what it actually means and reassure them. And we're going to speak more about this with Lorena in a moment. But BK, this week we had the electric, magical and hopeful moment. And then we had the crash back to earth too, with the ACCC stark warning that a gas supply shortage on the East Coast looms. The competition regulator basically said producers are gouging the market by selling most of our gas offshore at higher prices. That doesn't leave enough here for domestic supply at a price that's affordable to industry and consumers. Now, we produce so much gas, it seems unbelievable that we could be left with a 10% shortfall in supply by 2023. That's what the ACCC is predicting or forecasting. And of course, that would push up prices too. Cop this, PK, the wholesale gas price in the East Coast market, they've risen 246% in the last 12 months. That wholesale price makes up a significant part of our power bills. Not all of it, but part of it. Yours, mine, everybody else's. So look out because it means there are big price rises coming our way. What can a federal government do about this? Well, it has been threatening action. Looks like it may finally pull what's called the gas trigger, which would force gas suppliers to limit their exports and preserve enough for onshore use. The last government, the Morrison government, they created the trigger. It was a big stick waving around to try and keep the gas producers in line, basically, but they never actually pulled it. Will the Albanese government take that step and will it work? What do you reckon? Well, well they've, they've taken the first step in so much as saying that they are prepared now to do it and notifying the companies and that that matters. I interviewed the Resources Minister, Madeline King, on RM Breakfast on Tuesday. We're recording this on a Thursday. And she said the first stage of that mechanism had been triggered off the back of the ACCC report. From there, she's put the gas companies on notice. It, it doesn't mean the trigger will definitely be enforced. There's no decision to say it's definitely going to happen. And, and if it were to happen, it would be extraordinary. Of course, it would be a big deal. But it is sending a signal to companies is that the pressure is very much there. Then I spoke to the Minister for Industry, Ed Cusick. Now, the reason he matters is, well, he's the minister for a lot of companies that make stuff and they get this, Fran, they have huge contracts with gas companies to make Mm. that stuff because it costs a lot of money and you need a lot of energy to do that work. So they've been saying this is unsustainable, the prices that they're dealing with and the potential of no supply. Just to explain to everyone, they have these... The, these prices locked in, they have these contracts and then they run out and many of them are going to run out in the twelve month, next 12 months. So their, their gas, um, the cost of their gas is going to rise by a huge amount and they're looking at that and some of them are going to say it's going to send them out the back door. Yeah, and there are genuinely companies about to hit the wall, which Ed Husick's been told about, anecdotally he says. Here's our exchange. The gas producers can shape the outcome that will be workable for them and Australian industry and they can avoid a situation where we do this. But I do think we're getting to a point where we are going to have to take uh, hard action in activating uh, the trigger and uh, reforming it in a way that allows us to activate it on the basis of price if, if they don't come to the table. What he refers to then is it's only based at the moment on... Um, supply. so And that's why they've notified now they may pull the trigger because there's a looming supply shortage for next year. But it's not price-based, right? And mm-hmm. so he's putting price on the table there and looking to reform it so there's a price trigger as well. 
you know, we, we know it's global factors, but his issue is that there's a price spiral going on because, of course, as he said to me in that interview, Fran, what do you expect? That the war's going to end? Like, this is going to continue, that there's going to be these record prices. There will be a, a big in- interest, obviously, for profit-making companies to want to keep operating and selling in a, in a market where there is a desperation for this resource. What happens to us? It's our resource. And there is a yeah. strong sentiment in Australia. I reckon if they were to do this, it would actually be very domestically. Sure, it would upset the gas companies and the sovereign risk and all of this stuff you hear. But in terms of domestic politics... I reckon it would be an absolute winner, Fran, because uh, domestically Australians think, hang on a minute, so it's here and others are benefiting from it and we are worried all the time, including the industry and then households. So, Mm. you know, watch that space. They're actually working on that. That's imminent. Yeah, and so that threat's hanging over the gas industry, but they're potentially copying it from all sides, PK, because this week Greens leader Adam Band said that his party will support Labor's climate bill, locking in 43% 2030 emissions target. But he also said, and I'm quoting him here, the fight now begins to get Labor to stop opening any new gas and coal mines. And he vowed to, quote, comb the entire budget for any public money going to gas and coal corporations. And uh, within that, there's an easily identifiable $2 billion in subsidies that were part of the Morrison government's gas-fire-led recovery. Remember that? Not so much talk of that anymore. So while Lem's fighting words between the Greens and Labor PK, it signals big trouble for the fossil fuel companies because they have the gas trigger threat and now this threat of no government subsidies, no new government subsidies. So you'd think in an effort to calm that down and claw back some of that social licence, the gas producers and the exporters might be inclined to play ball with the government and give them what they want in terms of domestic reserves because, as you you know, alluded to, they're making big profits off the back of these rising gas prices. They're getting a lot of money and there's going to be less appetite, I would think, in the general population for them also getting a big subsidies. So is Labor going to take them on over subsidies? Can the Greens force that? You know, that could be worth a lot of money to the gas producers. Yeah, that's right. And let's segue, if we can, to the climate change bill. As we record, it will pass and being debated in the lower house. That is a really big deal that the Greens, I think, historically, it's a big deal that the Greens have agreed to vote for Labor's legislation with some changes. But as you rightly point out, Adam Band has said that's round one. There are other rounds and he's talked about budget bills and so forth. He has also said he won't um, block supply. There's a really different tone from the Greens leader. Catherine Murphy, who's often a, a guest here on the party room, but the Guardian editor said to ask him a question about reflecting on his, you know, the party's history here and the way that this issue has been conducted. And after giving a sort of pro forma answer, Greens answer, he then did say what he's learned is that you've got to give a little. And I reckon that's what we're seeing from the Greens. We are seeing maturing from the Greens actually in the way that they've conducted themselves in this latest debate. And I reckon it's actually quite significant because we're on the cusp, depends when you listen to this, the passing of this legislation. It's only the coalition really who didn't come to the party on that. And they've had their own reckoning on this this week, which I, w- I want to get to. But it's it's significant that after such a long and torturous war on these issues, it's one step, but we are now one step towards trying to move in the direction of lowering our emissions and, and meeting our international obligations. 
Yeah, I think that's true. And obviously, you know, the Greens were being told, as we mentioned last week, by all the major environment groups that you need to pass this because we need to get on with it. We need to get cracking. But I think it's also the electoral cycle timing might play a part in how this goes. Adam Bant saying, you, you know, he's learnt you've got to give a little. As the electoral cycle goes on and we get closer to the next election, the Greens will be looking Labor in the eye again and saying, we want to pinch some more of your seats over this. So they'll be trying to paint Labor as, you know, not doing enough. And so I, I expect the rhetoric... Uh, and the action in the Parliament and particularly in the Senate from the Greens might ramp up. But for now, there is peace in our time between Labor and the Greens. And don't forget the Teals, PK. They claim some wins here too mm. on this emissions bill. Everybody wants to signal to the constituents that they're doing what they promised they would. In this case, for the Greens and the Teals, they're delivering and participating on climate policy. Yeah, and improving the bill. They keep saying we've improved the bill. So yeah. and I interviewed Maureen Faruqi, who's the deputy leader of the Greens, and asked her about the Greens change position or the way they're operating. And she said the message from the electorate, I think she's dead right here, is that they want us to work cooperatively. So the Greens have got that message too, right? That they push, mm. that it's not sort of take it or leave it, that they need to work cooperatively as well. And they can still make their broader point and use other ways, which I suspect they will. It's like a big deal. Now, I said I, that we were going to discuss the coalition just briefly. They decided, well, they just followed their leader, let's be honest, because he'd locked them into not voting for this. But obviously the moderates, they say they've had a win because Peter Dutton has said that there will be more ambitious target, not the one that they took to the last election. The next election happens, so the coalition will go further. I spoke to Simon Birmingham, leading moderate, now shadow foreign affairs minister on breakfast, and he said he would vote for this in a heartbeat if, you know, if in some ways it was necessary. Remember Chris Bowen had told us that this legislation could still be done if it didn't pass, but he preferred it to be passed because of the market signal it's, it sends. We know Bridget Archer saying she's going to cross the floor in the lower house, but the coalition, have they appeased their moderates really, Fran? I mean, I think there is some no. sense that they have a little bit. Well, no, I don't think so. I mean, I don't think so at all. Ooh. It's just that Simon Birmingham doesn't want to pick a big fight, I think, within yep. the coalition so early on in the term. Of course, the of course, the opposition is going to have to upgrade their target next time around. I mean, it'll already be at 43%. That looks silly if they were still sticking to 26%, wouldn't they? So, of course, they will, and they'll probably make it a 2035 target or something like that. I don't think there's appeasing going on. I just think there's no appetite for a fight at this early stage, Bridget Archer will cross the floor and she's doing that to signal to the people who voted her in that she's staying true to what they want. But I think there is not going to be a full-scale insurrection against a brand-new leader. Basically, I think that's what this is. But, you know, Labor's not got it easy. The RBA handed down another rate rise this week, increasing the rate by another 50 basis point with the official cash rate now 1.35%. That wasn't a shock to anyone. The RBA governors warned us there were and still are more rate rises to come. But it puts a lot of pressure on the cost of living for all all of us who have mortgages. So what to do about it? Well, the opposition had a novel idea, PK. They're piling on the pressure for the government to extend the cut to the excise. What? I hear you say. It was the previous treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, that brought in this $3 billion measure. And when he did, he said it would end in September. No ifs, no buts. It would end in September. Now the coalition's changing its tune. It was their deadline, PK. <laughs> I think there is zero chance that the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, will commit another $3 billion to extend the fuel excise cut. But what are they going to do? They're going to have to do something. So what will he do? Maybe he needs to signal they'll put that $3 billion to better use, maybe subsidise cost of living 
in a more targeted way for those who really need it. They're going to have to come up with something, aren't they? Yeah, it's just the politics of opposition here, isn't it? I mean, you're right. Amazing. (laughs) Yeah, ridiculous, ridiculous. Now, the thing about this is, look, it's just not good policy. I understand it's helped some people, absolutely, but it's it's a pretty blanket measure. It's not targeted. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people who don't need help to pay their petrol bill. There's a lot of people who do. $3 billion is a lot of money to be spending every three months, really, isn't it? It affects the poorest person gets the slightly cheaper petrol and the richest, richest person does. I mean, it's just such a blanket, you know, and and the budget suffers a lot for it. So what could they do? Well, there's lots of things they could do. Watch this space, Fran, renters. They are the growing group in the electorate, Mm. right? They are growing. You know, there's analysis that shows they delivered the teal result, for instance, fewer Australians owning their own homes. Cost of living pressures are real where the rent assistance goes up. Yes, the budget's tight. Yes, a trillion dollars in debt. Well, rents are going up. That's one thing that's going up for sure. That's right. But there is more targeted help they could give. There's huge pressure on the government in this October budget. It wants to deliver on its promises in the election. Some of them will help with cost of living. But they could do some practical things too. One of them was suggested actually uh, at his press club address by the Greens leader. But I also spoke to Jay Weatherall, who's behind this this group campaigning on better childcare. He's a former South Australian Labor Premier. He says they could bring forward their childcare reforms to January next year rather than starting in July to help families. There are things they can do, that's all. And um, I suspect they're exploring some of those. It has to be meaningful for Australians because this, this is tough times, right? Mm. And the honeymoon will end. It will absolutely yeah. end because people are feeling yeah. the pinch. I think you're right. It has to be meaningful, but it has to be immediate too. That's absolutely right. Well, look, on that note, Fran, let's bring in our guest. Let's do it. (laughs) Marina Alam, Gamilaroi and Yuwalare woman and Indigenous Affairs Editor at The Guardian Australia. Welcome to the party room. Thank you, Fran. Now, thanks so much for making the time for us. Um, you're joining us from Larrakia country in Darwin, Lorena, and I want to take you back to the Gama Festival last weekend where we both last saw each other. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese used his address there to really build momentum for the voice to parliament, which he has committed to enshrining in the constitution in this term of government. In his speech, he spoke of 200 years of broken promises and false starts. And as a starting point, he recommended adding three sentences to the constitution and has proposed what really is a relatively simple yes or no style referendum question. Do you think he's got the winning formula? I think at this stage of the conversation, it is. It's a very smart move uh, to not give too much detail at the beginning and risk derailing the whole process. I think asking Australians a very simple question, yes or no, really has echoes of the 67 referendum in that people were voting for a noble cause rather than the detail of an organisation that they couldn't understand the purpose of. So I think at this part, I mean, there's still a long way to go in this conversation, but at this beginning start, um, I I think that, that, you know, keeping it really simple and clear is the right way to go because obviously there'll need to be a big civic education program uh, around what voting is going to mean and why a voice to parliament is important. But for now, I think it's, it's, I think it's a very impressive start. He went further than I had expected he was going to do, going to go. Even, even simple though, it's confusing to some still. I mean, we all, we've been talking about the voice for ages, but I had a family member say to me, what's the voice? I have no idea what the voice is. So there is a big civic education campaign 
to be done, you're right. But it didn't take long for questions around details to start flooding this debate, mostly from opposition voices who I suspect are intent on confusing. And that's obviously what Anthony Albanese was trying to do here with such a simple proposition, avoid the traps of referendums past where the debate got bogged down in the details so that ultimately mm. people vote no because they don't understand what, what they're voting on. But then on Wednesday, the Prime Minister seemed to backtrack a bit and confirm more details would come before the vote. And Linda Burney, the Minister for Indigenous Affairs, has said that it would be nuts to not provide additional details. So what's it going to be, do you think, ultimately? A simple referendum question or a detailed plan promoted and fully debated before we get to the yes or no bit? I think the the latter first. There'll be a question put to the people and that the detail will be, I think, given to people as necessary at the time. I think they want to step this through very carefully. That's my understanding. Talking to people about the broad question, why why voting yes for this matters, why it matters to Aboriginal people and what Australians have the capacity to do when they vote. The next step then is to answer some of those questions and provide a little bit of detail. They, they clearly, in my view, they clearly have a plan of how they want this to go, and but they're just being very careful and releasing the information people need to comprehend when they need to comprehend it. I do think you're right though, Fran, the idea of asking for more detail is a distraction. He clearly doesn't want to get bogged down in that. He called it the cul-de-sac of detail um, when, when he spoke to insiders at Gama Festival. So I think they have learned their lessons from previous referenda and want to do this carefully. And that's exactly what Linda Burney has said. We want to go slowly and carefully. She will be consulting with the Aboriginal leadership, she said, and um, there'll be other consultations broadly with the Australian people. And of course, there is plenty of detail around for a model which politicians would know. Uh, and I'm talking about the people who are asking for detail here, not regular mm. punters, right, <laughs> who are just trying <laughs> to learn about this, yes. but the politicians who have been involved in this process. Now, Prime Minister indicated that the model for The Voice provided by Professor Marcia Langton and Tom Karma will be key to its design, and that's important. It was drafted for the former Morrison government in 2021. That was just for those who aren't all over the detail. Exploring this for legislating a body, not putting it in the Constitution, because they didn't want to put it in the Constitution. It was just to be legislated. I spoke to Marcia Langton last Friday on RM Breakfast, and I asked her about the demands for from some for, for more detail, and she said details on the voice to Parliament are already incredibly clear and have been laid out in, frankly, you know, exhausting details to politicians. She mm. says she sees this request from some members of the coalition as a way of mischief-making and selling confusion. Is that what's going on from some of them? Because it seems that every time you give a bit of detail, the answer, and I'm talking about the political class here, not average Australians, it's really important to say this, go, ooh, oh, we want more detail. Actually, the proposal, Lorena, allows the parliament to legislate the body. So the very people asking for the detail would be responsible for partly co-designing this thing, wouldn't they? Uh, yes, that's exactly right, PK. I mean, it's a little confusing to hear the opposition spokesman on Indigenous Australians, Julian Lisa, saying he wants more detail when he co-chaired the Joint Parliamentary Committee with uh, Labor Senator Pat Dodson in 2018, in which they provided a great deal of detail about how a voice might operate to the parliament. And granted, he is he's towing the party line to a certain extent. This is what the coalition has been saying. We want more detail. But of all of the coalition members, he is the one who would already have that detail in his own mind. To be fair, though, he did say at Gama that he had worked on this 
this project, this this campaign for too long to see it fail because the government didn't adequately explain its case. It's a difficult balancing act that the Albanese government has. But I do agree with you that the coalition already has the detail and to a certain extent this is this is an obfuscation and a, and a distraction from the main point, which is to bring the Australian people along step by step in the process mm. and explain to them what they're being asked to do. And that's always the hard bit. The Prime Minister's proposal, as outlined at Gama, had the simple question, but it also had three sentences that would be included or inserted into the Constitution. One of them... I just want to ask you about the third one because he said a sentence would make it clear the parliament has the power to make laws on how the voice is established and operates. Now, obviously, that's an attempt to signpost the primacy of the parliament rather Mm. than the primacy of the vote to sort of allay fears of, you know, the voice being anything like a third chamber with equal status in in lawmaking as the rest of the parliament. But I wondered how some Indigenous Australians are reacting to that, the notion that their representative body will be at the whim of of the parliament, of politicians. Yeah, it's a good question, Fran. That struck me too when I first read Albo's speech and I thought this is... This will be a hard sell to Aboriginal Islander people who aren't already deeply involved in the process of the Uluru campaign to now. I mean, the campaigners said that they were fine with that. They understood that that was the... um, that was the position. It was their position to a certain extent. So they were quite happy that their preferences had been adopted in those three sentences. But there have been questions asked in social media and in various other places about what that will mean for the power of the voice to affect change. But I do think that given we have now 11 First Nations people in Parliament, the time is very ripe for us to be able to thrash out a version of the voice that that accounts for that and and tries to to bring you know to bring to the fore the best possible model. The other thing about that I've been told by uh, constitutional lawyers is that this has to be necessarily broad because then if the voice is not working, if it doesn't do what people want it to do, it can be changed and amended. There needs to be some way of doing that. And obviously the parliament is the place to do that. Yeah. And of course, there's also issues around, this is a constitutional change that then stays in the constitution for a voice. You could have different composition of Indigenous populations across the country. Lots of things can happen in the next 100, 200 years too. So it allows the <laughs> parliament to respond to... Let's hope so. Yeah, exactly. And, and in a way, it's and it's an acknowledgement. People are invoking the spirit of ATSIC these days and I don't want this to be a distraction from what we're talking about now because they are two very different things. Howard abolished ATSIC effectively because he could. This is a way of saying that we can have a similar body that can change over time but cannot be removed by the government of the day, which means there's always an obligation on the parliament to provide uh, a form of representation and a voice for Aboriginal people. Mm. And to engage with Indigenous Australians around that. Exactly. I mean, the other side of having a voice is having someone who will listen. So, you know, the next challenge is to, to make sure that there's a way for the voice to be properly heard, that people are prepared to do the listening. Because as PK knows, this is only phase one of a three-phase mm. process. We have treaty making and a Makarata commission next and then truth-telling. So I, I think in a way it's going to get more challenging. Mm-hmm. The voice in a lot of ways is the easy part of this yeah, I process. Agree. And, and within Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and certainly amongst First Nations parliamentarians where we have record numbers 
there are really, uh, of course, a range of different perspectives, which you'd expect. I mean, like, you know, every other community, there are a range of political views in all communities. One First Nations parliamentarian who opposes the referendum is the Northern Territory LNP Senator Jacinta Price. Here's what she had to say on The Voice to Parliament in her maiden speech last week. The same attitude we hear with platitudes of motherhood statements from our now Prime Minister, who suggests without any evidence whatsoever that a voice to Parliament bestowed upon us through the virtuous act of symbolic gesture by this government is what is going to empower us. This government has yet to demonstrate how this proposed voice will deliver practical outcomes and unite rather than drive a wedge further between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australia. So that's the LNP Senator Jacinta Price giving her perspective on the voice to Parliament during her maiden speech. Now, later on the ABC TV Q&A program, she said she will probably not be working with the government on a voice to Parliament. She said there were more pressing issues facing Indigenous communities, primarily the safety of Indigenous children and women. Lorena, will her view impact the potential for a bipartisan position from the Coalition? I think it's a, an issue they will need to look at because she does have the ear of uh, a certain percentage of the population and she does cut through, even though there are lots of people who would object and uh, disagree with her perspective. I do wonder how those views correlate with the views of her electorate and whether she is representing all of her electorate when she says those things. You know, I appreciate that she has a different view we're not a homogenous group, as you said, PK. There's a lot of different... We're, you know, many hundreds of nations with languages mm. and cultures and we're more like uh, Europe than we are a homogenous group like um, like in the Māori in New Zealand. So there will always be conflicting views. But I think those questions that she has about this government's ability to demonstrate the purpose of the voice and, the, and whether it will, you know, create practical change, those questions are best directed at the Aboriginal leadership who have been working on this for the last 15 years. In a lot of ways, the government is adopting recommendations and, and the work that was done by people like Megan Davis, Noel Pearson, Pat Anderson and many others around the country. So Jacinta Price's questions are valid. But they need to be directed not at the government, but at the, the people who provided all of this work and the dialogues, hundreds of dialogues around the country over many years with senior traditional owners from all around the nation. So they're the people who made these decisions about what a voice should do and, you know, potentially what, how it should operate. Green Senator Lydia Thorpe, she's got another view too. Um, she says that the parliament needs to look at implementing or Australia needs to implement all elements of the Uluru Statement from the heart. So you mentioned this is just one of them, perhaps the easiest, mm. perhaps the easiest one to implement, but there's also treaty, which we know is hard because it's been in the too hard basket for decades now. There's also the makarata, the truth-telling. Um, but she does say she'll work with the government to shape what the referendum looks like. So not a ringing endorsement exactly. Lorena, if Labor were to implement all the elements of it altogether, it would definitely complicate things. Do you think it would? Do you think it would sink the referendum? Uh, my view is, I think it probably it would. Yes, I, I think that's not going to happen. I mean, I think Albanese said yesterday or the day before this this process, the voice process, was probably the thing they wanted done, and the other processes 
necessarily take a long time. I mean, there was a, a Haida leader from British Columbia at Gama Festival last week who talked about the treaty process with the Canadian government taking 15 years. So that's not something that will happen quickly. And it's not something that can happen concurrent to a voice to parliament. That's why I think the sequencing of the voice was so important to the architects of the statement. Voice, then treaty, then truth. While some of those things can overlap, the substantive work takes a long time and their view was the voice needed to be in place first because in order to negotiate a treaty, you need two sides to negotiate with. So who would negotiate the treaty on behalf of the First Nations peoples of Australia? Mm. I don't think anyone disagrees that we that treaties are not important and more than one, treaties are important. Um, but the process of that, the parameters of that are enormously complicated. And I think Pat Anderson said to me yesterday that we can't wait we don't, we don't want to wait any longer. We've got elderly people, people who, like Gullaroy Yunupingu, who is frail now and in a wheelchair, um, who's spent his entire life fighting for the rights of his people and doesn't want to wait another 10 years or 15 years. We don't have that sort of time anymore. So the voice is step one, and it's an achievable step that you know, I think incredibly we have a government that's willing to undertake the process. And to lean in and, and put political capital in it, which is no easy task, right? Mm. Now, of course, this lack of support from members of the coalition that we were discussing, I think was furthered by former Prime Minister Tony Abbott, who penned an opinion piece for The Australian stating that he didn't support the voice to parliament, which, well, we knew. Uh, he sees <laughs> it as a as making a race-based society part of our parliament. Now, Lorena, the idea of First Nations Australians being a race has been debunked many times, but it does seem to be a criticism some in the opposition ranks are deploying against the voice. And I've said this on air, and I think it's important to say some of the lines that are being trotted out. You know, I've had coalition MPs say to me, should there be a Greek Australian voice to parliament? You know, if we're going to make oh, things race-based, they have. And that's one of the arguments that you're going to hear, which is why I put mm. it to people. You're going to hear a lot more of this. So, Lorena... How to explain that? That is a complex issue. It's not everyone can grapple with. How do we how do we get to the heart of that? Well, talking about race-based division in Australia uh, being something that we're about to create in the Constitution is incredible to me because there's been race-based division in this country since they got off the boat. I mean, we're talking about more than, you know, 200 years of legislated discrimination against Aboriginal people. We weren't allowed to own land. We weren't allowed to work for wages. We weren't allowed to choose who we could marry. Our families were born on missions behind barbed wire fences and had to get permission to leave the mission, to buy a dress. To, we, you know, for almost 100 years, our children were removed from us under legislative... I mean, they were automatically born as wards of the state in a number of... Uh, under protection legislation. So when we talk about race-based division, there's been a lot of that. What the voice is supposed to do is correct that. And to also acknowledge the primacy of First Nations people, that we have always been here. Our ancestors walked this land for thousands of years and we did not cede our sovereignty. We didn't say, yes, you can have this country. The recognition in the constitution very broadly, and I'm speaking not as a journalist, but as a, as a Uwalaroi woman now, this is an acknowledgement that our ancestors were here and that mm. we have a right to be here and a right to be acknowledged as the First Nations of the country. And that it is a special role because of that. It's not about which racial or cultural groups exist in this country. It's actually about the original custodianship, right? 
Well, yes, we're on the bottom of every economic, socioeconomic ladder. We have closing the gap targets for a reason, because the gap is so wide and that gap has been built over centuries of colonisation and the dispossession and deprivation of our rights. The Voice is, is a way of acknowledging that a great wrong was done and here's the redress. Here's a way of making right something that has been wrong for centuries. And it's just Look, so obvious that we have this recognition in the Constitution, in the foundation document, isn't it really, in whichever form we end up with, but it's got to be there. Lorena, thank you so much for giving us your time. I know you've got a busy day, so thanks heaps. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Thank you. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Ah, the bells are ringing and we're up to date. Question time. We've updated for the new parliament. How fabulous. This week's question comes from Andrew who says, does even a relatively simple proposal such as the referendum on a voice to parliament create sufficient divergence of views to make it a more difficult process to pass a constitutional amendment than it should be? Additionally, are we in danger of speaking for the for the First Nations people rather than allowing them to speak for themselves? Okay. Well, actually, yes, it's hard hard to pass anything at a referendum. Like, that's a fact. Very hard benchmark for success. It's not like a plebiscite, like for the same-sex marriage um, issue, there was a plebiscite. It was, it was a totally different proposition, right? For a referendum, it's hard to pass. So it's, even if it's a relatively simple proposal, like the Prime Minister has suggested, it's always going to be hard because of the history here and the fact that every state has to have a majority vote. It's a really high benchmark for success. Secondly, are we in danger of speaking for First Nations people rather than allowing them to speak for themselves? It's a really good question. First Nations people uh, should be at the centre of this discussion, in my view. Uh, Lorena was invited onto our podcast this week because uh, she is a fantastic journalist, but she's a First Nations journalist and you will notice more and more First Nations journalists um, in this debate including as reporters, but also then, of course, centering Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices in every discussion we have. But there's another part of this. When Australia votes, all of Australia votes. So all people need to be involved in the discussion. There's a reason for that. You don't get success any other way. Everyone has to be involved because everyone gets a vote. Now, Indigenous Australia is a small proportion of the nation and the voting bloc. That's the truth. In fact, that is actually one of the premise, Fran, of Noel Pearson's original essay about this idea that he put so many years ago now, many years ago, he wrote this essay, very fundamental, yeah. seminal piece of work, where he talked about that voicelessness of the being the mouse, of being so outnumbered in a community. That's why the voice is actually fundamentally about amplifying a community that is always drowned out by this majority non-Indigenous population, right? So, yeah, sent Entering Aboriginal voices is going to be key in this discussion. I think people should do a lot of listening. Uh, but there is, of course, a role for non-Indigenous Australia in having the discussion, but not being gatekeepers, but having the discussion as well, because everyone needs to vote. So everyone needs to understand what they're voting for ultimately. Yeah. And not just that we all need to vote, it's that we all need to own this change and we all need to feel good about this change. You, you talked about the electric and magical and hopeful moment there at Gama. We all need to feel that magic and to feel hopeful that this change will develop um, a, a, better, a, a better nation, a better constitution that reflects who we are and how we started. So I think that's really important. Um, and I would, you know, that, that essay from Noel Pearson all those years ago, you're right, it was seminal. I really recommend to people, to everyone listening, read it. If you can find it, read it. It was, it 
it was such a powerful argument he set out there. It really helped clarify my thinking. And Andrew, in terms of, you know, your question in, about keeping it simple, yes, we have learnt over the history of referendums in this country, only eight out of 44 have passed. Okay, what does that tell us? It tells us they're very, very difficult to get a yes vote across the nation. So keeping it simple is absolutely been proven to be the best tactic so far. It worked in 1967. Let's hope it'll work again this time. Yeah, but also just one extra point. Sorry, Fred, I'm so obsessed with this issue, I know, but I've been covering it for so many years and I've watched it from its infancy as an idea, right, to, to really developing into a movement. This particular proposal, can I say Aboriginal people have been campaigning for since colonisation, but I mean this particular proposal. Everyone has a right to ask questions. I think that's important. Everyone has a right to critique, ask questions. There are divergent views. Even in the Aboriginal community, that's fine. But we need to keep it respectful and we need to understand what the ultimate aim of this is, which is uh, really acknowledging the very long history of First Nations people in this country, which I think is meaningful to all of us. I think it gives Mm. us a distinctiveness as a country that we should be very proud of. Keep sending your questions in. We love them. Um, You can tweet using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions to The Party Room at abc.net.au. And remember to follow us, The Party Room, on the ABC Listen app. That's it for The Party Room this week. See you, PK. See you, Fran. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.